One of the greatest obstacles to crafting health and wellness is identifying and controlling inflammation. It's at the core of all complex and chronic diseases, and it's the driving mechanism that underlies the most common symptoms that people like you struggle to overcome. Join us as we explore cutting-edge science and research to give you the information and tools you need to create the quality of life you want and deserve. And now, here is the host of Inflammation Nation, Dr. Stephen Noseworthy. You know, this concept of food quality applies to carbohydrates as well. And this is this is an area where I think a lot of people really run into trouble. I mean, not only are the bad-for-you carbohydrates probably the most delicious, and of course, that, that could be a learned uh, response as well. Um, the, the, the flip side of that is that the carbohydrates that are good for you, if you don't like them now, you can learn to like them, which is really kind of good news because what you don't want particularly in the realm of carbohydrate intake, is you don't want your your desire for flavor um, and satisfaction to be driving your choices because invariably you're going to make the wrong choice. And so when it comes to carbohydrate quality, there's actually several different sub-conversations to have. Um, one is to talk about the impact of certain carbohydrates on your blood sugar. If you have been tracking with this podcast and listening to some of the earlier episodes, we talk about blood sugar as um, one of the main things, particularly the control of insulin, um, is one of the main goals in terms of controlling your inflammatory state and your inflammatory load. And so ideally what we would do is to not eat or significantly limit foods that have a significant impact on blood sugar, meaning raising it high very quickly, which then would require a robust insulin response from the pancreas, and if we do that often enough, then our insulin levels creep up because our body becomes more resistant and we end up into this high insulin, high blood sugar, insulin resistance paradigm or metabolic state, which is purely inflammatory. And that's not good uh, no matter which angle that you look at that from. And so many, many years ago, I'm going to say decades ago, um, somebody came up with the idea of the glycemic index. And forgive me, I don't know who it was that originated, but I do know there's a, a website, glycemicindex.com. That's G-L-Y-C-E-M-I-C, glycemicindex.com, which is a website that is um, curated, if you will, uh, as kind of an, an international data set of glycemic index or indices of food so that anybody can come to uh, that website, type in a food, and you can get an idea of how badly that food is going to affect your blood sugar. And so the glycemic index is a scale from 0 to 100, 100 being the worst, 0 being the best. The lower the numbers are, the less likely a food is going to spike your blood sugar and therefore create an, a high insulin response. But the higher the glycemic index is, the closer that number is to 100, the more profound is the impact on your insulin production and therefore leading you into potentially a pro-inflammatory state. And as a general rule, uh, you want to consume foods that are uh, in the low glycemic category, which means they, they carry a glycemic index of from 0 to 59. So there's three different categories of the glycemic index. 0 to 59 is considered low glycemic. 60 to 69 is considered moderate glycemic index. And then 70 and above is considered high glycemic index. Consider this that both white bread and table sugar both have a glycemic index of 100. 
In fact, white bread and table sugar are the standard to which all other foods are compared. So for example, if somebody wants to know what the glycemic index of an apple is, they would study how much consuming an apple raises someone's blood sugar compared to eating a slice of bread or consuming, say, a, a teaspoon or so of table sugar. And that's how they make the comparisons. And that's how they rate um, this glycemic index. And that can be a great guide when you're when you're grappling with this idea of how do I how do I change the carbohydrate prescription of my ideal food code or that digit in that combination that we've been talking about. One thing you can do is just kind of look at your carbohydrate intake and get rid of the foods that are in the moderate to high category. Now, that's automatically going to bring you down towards the non-starchy, crunchy, cruciferous, leafy greens and berries. It's going to kind of shift you in that direction, which is not a bad thing to do. But there is an inherent flaw in the glycemic index. And um, that flaw is, I can illustrate this way. Let's say that you take an apple, and you take jelly beans. Jelly beans are going to have a much higher glycemic index because pretty much it's nothing but sugar, gluten, and food dyes. And it's chemical stuff. So not only will jelly beans tend to spike your blood sugar, they have a higher glycemic index than an apple, which contains good nutrients, indigestible, digestible fibers. There's lots of yumminess. It's lower on the glycemic scale. But what if I asked you, what, is, what do you think the impact is of eating a single jelly bean compared to eating 10 apples at one time? Not that you could or would really want to, but it's a thought exercise. If you eat 10 apples at one time, even though each individual apple has a low glycemic index, because you're eating 10 at a time, it's going to have a significant impact on your blood sugar, even though apples are considered low glycemics, glycemic. On the other side, Jelly beans are high glycemic index, but if you only eat one, as long as you're not reacting to gluten or the chemicals that are in the jelly bean, then that's really not going to hit your blood sugar all that much. And so back in 1997-ish, um, the medical community started talking about, or the scientific community started talking about this thing called the glycemic load, which is not just about the glycemic rating or index of each individual food, it's a measure of how much of those foods you're eating to really get a better sense of what your dietary carbohydrate intake is and how it's affecting your blood sugar, or at least the probability that your blood sugar is going to spike. And so you might want to spend some time looking these concepts up. There are plenty of tables. Again, you can go to glycemicindex.com. They have a database that you can see. I believe it's curated by the University of Sydney in Australia. Um, but nevertheless, you can pretty much look up any food if it's a food that you really like and you don't know how it's affecting your blood sugar you just look it up in the glycemic index you want it to be 59 or below and if it's on the higher side then you have to ask the question well how much of this do I eat like if I'm eating a moderate moderate glycemic index scored food like something that's maybe 65 or 68 still moderately uh, and moderate in terms of its glycemic impact but if I'm eating small amounts infrequently, that's probably not going to be as bad as eating something with a glycemic index of 61, which is on the low end of moderate, but I'm eating large amounts of it every time and I'm doing that on, on, on an ongoing basis. So this tends to complicate the conversation about the quality of carbohydrates. And the first parameter that we think about is how is that particular choice in terms of the, the nature of the food itself, 
plus how much I'm eating and how frequently, what impact is that going to have on my blood sugar control and hence on my insulin production? Let's move on to the next thing, and I've touched on this in, in other areas, and that is to look at things like uh, foods that have high lectin content. Now, lectins are proteins, uh, but they're found in fruits and vegetables. In fact, fruits, vegetables, and even fat do have protein content, even though when we use the word protein, we think animal products like beef or dairy and that kind of stuff. Um, nevertheless, lectins are... Um, carbohydrate binding proteins, meaning that when we eat foods that have high amounts of carbohydrates, the lectin portion of that food can actually bind to carbohydrate structures that are on the surface of our own human tissue. And then it can alter the function, the structure, and the health of that cell. And some people are lectin sensitive and some are not. And we tend to see lectin sensitivity more so in people who are chronically inflamed, particularly those with autoimmune diseases, hence the inflammation nation. And so while all foods have lectins and they're different types, the ones that tend to run us into problem areas are going to be the lectins that are found in nightshade vegetables. So things like uh, potatoes, tomatoes, eggplants, peppers, and also the lectins that are found in nuts and seeds and beans and legumes. Now, if you're sitting there going like, oh, wow, that's like a whole bunch of stuff that I actually eat. Well, you have two things to think about. Number one is what is the lectin content, but you also have to start thinking about what is the impact on my blood sugar control and thereby by my insulin production and output. And you might have to make some changes based on that. I would say that typically uh, people who are lectin sensitive are going to know it because they, they tend to get some pretty quick symptomatology that's easily recognizable. Now, it may be that you're locked into an inflammatory cycle and um, you really have to take things out of your diet for a period and then reintroduce them to see if you have a reaction. That's actually quite a valid way to do it. Um, but if you're reacting to a whole bunch of other foods and you take away the, say, the nightshade vegetables or the high lectin foods, but you should have taken other things like wheat and dairy out, but you didn't think about that, you might not be able to discern any change associated with eating or not eating these high lectin foods. But nevertheless, if you are experiencing chronic inflammation, and particularly if you have autoimmune issues that you know or suspect you have, you might want to go through a trial period of, and I would say give it at least three weeks, of not eating high lectin-containing foods, and then do a reintroduction and see if you have a flare-up of your symptomatology. Now, let's move on to a couple more things in, in uh, talking about whether or not fruits and vegetables should be eaten or consumed in an organic form. And, you know, I'll, I'll kind of echo a few things that I said when we were talking about the quality of protein intake. And that is, you know, a lot of these things are good ideas. Number one, if it's available to you. And number two, if you can afford it. Affordability has become uh, better in, in the recent years compared to 10, certainly 15 years ago, where it seems like, you know, as long as you're in a relatively decent size um municipality, you probably have a Whole Foods or a Sprouts or a Fresh Market or something like that where you can go and you can be pretty confident that you are consuming things that are organic. But here's the deal. Even things that are labeled organic, it doesn't mean they have zero chemicals. It doesn't mean they have zero pesticides or, or fungicides or insecticides. It just means they have less. And that's, that's for two reasons. Number one is that 
you know, let's say I'm a farmer and I farm organically and let's say I'm certified and I don't use chemical fertilizers or sprays that would actually get onto my crop. But let's say my neighbor, Bob, who's also a farmer, hasn't switched to organic. And so he's out there on, on his farm just half a mile away and he's spraying all kinds of chemicals on his crops and the wind blows in my direction. Guess what happens to my crops and my exposure? Not only is it quite possible for organic farmers to have chemicals and pesticides, etc., on their organically grown crop, it is entirely possible that some of the chemical content that we find in organic fruits and vegetables is actually not what's being sprayed on top of it, but it's actually what's being soaked up from the soil underneath. There are all kinds of heavy metals and environmental toxins that are in the soil. And so you, you either get toxicity in these organic compounds or, or vet fruits and vegetables, either by absorbing things from the soil or by spraying it on top yourself or having a draft or, or waft down from the wind where your neighbor or some other person in some other place is spraying chemicals on their stuff and it's just blowing over into your backyard. <clears throat> so if you are able to afford the organic stuff, great, fantastic. I think it's a good idea. But don't fool yourself into thinking that you're actually getting zero chemical exposure. Here's a very quick story. I, I worked with a, a lady out in California several years ago, and, and she was actually um, very well known. Um, she was kind of proud of the fact that she had her own organic farm. She actually grew a lot of her own fruits and vegetables, and everything was all organic. Um, yet when we tested her for environmental toxins, we found a pretty high load of insecticides and pesticides and even heavy metals. And we ended up tracking it down to the soil that these things were being grown in. So like I said, you can make your best efforts. Your organic farmers are making their best effort, but they can, cannot control all the variables that could potentially lead into toxicity and, and chemicals and pesticides, even heavy metals that show up in organic produce. Now, lucky for you and I, some really smart and caring people at the Environmental Working Group. You can go to their website. It's ewg.org, ewg.org. Uh, they produce every year what they call the Clean 15 and the Dirty Dozen. And this is a great resource. I've used this with my clients for many different years. Basically, the Clean 15 are fruits and vegetables that tend not to soak up more contaminants. And so you can probably, you can buy those at your local supermarket without having to worry about, was this organically grown? And I'm not going to spit out the list here. Just go to the Environmental Working Group's website, ewg.org, and look for the clean 15 and dirty dozen symbol. You'll be able to download that yourself. And it gives you a nice little chart. I believe they'll, if you give a donation, they'll even send you something that you can put in your wallet. Um, and so that's the clean 15 and there's things that we don't have to really worry about sourcing from an organic standpoint, but they also have a list called the dirty dozen. Now they call it the dirty dozen plus because they've added a few foods to that original list of 12. And these are things that tend to hold on to or soak up and absorb more toxins from the soil and from the environment than others. And so these are the things that really should probably be bought organic if you can if you can afford it and if it's available to you. And the bottom line is when you choose to grow organic with your carbohydrates, you are minimizing your impact, but you're not negating it. You will always, always, always be exposed to chemicals 
and heavy metals through your carbohydrate portion of your diet, even if you are spending a lot of money making sure that everything is organic, even if you're, you're growing it yourself, you're going to be exposed to some choice or at some place. Now, let me leave you with this in terms of making making some kind of quality decisions about carbohydrates um, that kind of blend the realities of reducing lectin intake, making sure we don't blow our blood sugar, and then merging that list with the clean 15 and the dirty dozen. For the most part, when you're trying to control your carbohydrates in your optimized diet, um, you want to stick to things like mostly berries, low glycemic index uh, vegetables, leafy greens, the low starch roots and tubers, things like carrots, parsnips, rutabaga, different squash varieties. Now, based on your individuality, you might have issues with any of those things. So you might have an immune response to a carrot. And so I might say, hey, carrots are a good choice. That's a general statement which may or may not apply to you. So remember, you are unique. You have to treat yourself that way. Your doctor certainly should treat you that way. And if you don't, who's, who's going to? All right, we'll talk again on the next episode of the Inflammation Nation. Thank you so much for listening to the Inflammation Nation. If you found this episode valuable, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. Be the first to know when a new episode drops so that you can stay on top of your game. It also helps others like you find the answers they need. And why not head over to my main website, drnoseworthy.com. That's drnoseworthy.com to explore my personalized functional medicine coaching programs, submit a question to the podcast, maybe take a quiz, or even reach out to me using the contact form that you can find there. We'll see you next time.